Join me for a reading from the New Testament, Matthew chapter 9. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening. evening. I'm Glenn Hoberg. Usually I introduce myself. hate to just get up here and preach. And you say, who is that man that's responsible for that sermon? Uh, It's me. So uh, let's pray. God, we're grateful to be gathered together. We're so thankful for the promise of your presence. You're the initiator here. You're the one that has come to us. Help us to respond to you, each of us, in Christ's name. Amen. When the Gospel writers talk about miracles, they use different terms because they tell us different things. Sometimes they'll refer to them as mighty acts or mighty deeds because they reveal the power of Jesus. Sometimes they refer to them as wonders because they draw amazement from those that experience them. And other times they refer to them as signs because they're actually pointing beyond themselves. They're signs to who Jesus is and what He has done. But also, they're signs in another sense. Signs of those who come seeking the miracle. Signs of their disposition toward Jesus. The condition of their faith. And what we learn from this passage is something about the tenacity, the stubbornness, the persistence of faith. The tenacity of faith. A few years ago, Meg, my wife, and I went to a graduation at American University. And one of the commencement speakers was a woman originally from Ethiopia named Terrace Clark. About seven years earlier, she and her brothers and sisters were living in an orphanage. Uh, Their town had been torn apart by war. And uh, there was a school there. The school had one chalkboard and two holes in the wall. The holes in the walls were for ventilation because it was so overcrowded. The distance to the school was about an hour. 
And because the terrain was so hot, burning sand, rocks, her brothers and sisters would wake up about an hour before daybreak to go. She would wake up two hours before daybreak to go because Terrace couldn't walk. She was disabled. And she began to tell the story of how she would crawl to school. Crawl there and crawl back. She did this until she could no longer do it physically because of the damage. And at that point, her brothers and sisters would take turns doing piggyback, carrying her, which was no small feat for kids that were malnourished. She said uh, in her speech that often people use the metaphor uh, getting ahead in the world on the shoulders of others. She said, for me, it was literally the truth. Well, eventually it was decided she could no longer go to school. And she just remained in the orphanage until she found her way to America, finished school, and there she is standing on the stage of American University as the commencement speaker. I mean, any of us that were in that room could not deny the tenacity of this young woman. I mean, the uh, boldness with which she spoke, the determination with which she lived. How about you? Could your relationship with God and your faith be described as tenacious, as bold, as dogged? That's what I want us to look at this evening. I know the title says, The Miracle of Grace. Well, you know, the Holy Spirit sometimes doesn't get in to the deadline for the bulletin to be printed. Uh, It's not my fault. Anyway, but tenacious faith is a miracle of grace. But let's look at the tenacity of faith and then the tenacity of the Savior. Okay? Now, Matthew sets the scene here. Jesus is preaching the Word of God to a packed house. And there's lots of different folk in there. His disciples, people from the village were told that religious leaders were there. And as it turns, there are a group, Mark tells us, of four friends. And these four friends have a friend that's paralyzed, a paralytic. And their determination is to bring him to Jesus. Now, Matthew gives us a pretty straightforward account of this. He doesn't give us a lot of details. If you go to Luke and Mark, the other Gospels, we get more details. But even so, I think it's very easy for us to read over this thing and miss out on the drama of it. I was reading a commentary this week. It happens to be from uh, theologian, New Testament scholar, Dan Doriani, who's actually been in our congregation before and taught. This is how he describes the scene. The men break a hole in the roof and claw to enlarge it. The crowd below hears the sounds of digging and pounding. They feel the first flecks of debris falling on them. Soon a shower of loosened materials cascades down on them. The people below begin to scatter, because they, but they have to gaze upward, wondering what is happening. Soon there is a small hole in the roof. The men work steadily and the holes grow larger. The crowd can see the men, and the men can see the crowd. Before long, the design is clear. There is a paralytic on the roof. His friends are tying ropes to his stretcher and peering over the edge as they lower their immobile friend to Jesus. All eyes turn upward. They see the dust mode shimmer and glide downward in the light that streams through the hole. The stretcher descends too, amidst a rubble of conversations. 
The room grows quiet as the paralytic suspended in space sways gently before Jesus. We can almost hear the creak of the rope on the wood. What a scene. What it would have been to be there as the roof literally comes in. But what might be more significant is how Jesus responds to what happens. Now, we're told here, and this is not without significance, we're told not that Jesus heard their profession of faith, or Jesus heard their faith, but rather Jesus what? He saw their faith. Jesus saw their faith. Faith has to be seen. Faith has to be seen. We live in a time, and Andrew referred to this earlier, where people understand their spirituality to be private and personal. But the Bible really knows nothing about that. Because faith at some point must be visible. It must be seen and observed and experienced. The New Testament teaches this. The book of James says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one, oneself unstained from the world. Visible faith is seen how? By its treatment of the vulnerable. By the way one lives in personal holiness. Then Jesus even gets bolder later in the book of Matthew as He tells the parable of the sheep and the goats which is about the final judgment. Jesus divides the righteous from the wicked. How? Not by the faith they profess, but the faith they perform. Jesus says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. For a good long time, I used to think at the final judgment, Jesus was basically going to pull out a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith and ask me the definition of what is justification by faith. I've come to believe I don't think that's going to happen. Why? Because He already knows the answer from my life. He already knows the answer from my life. I pray He would. How does Jesus see your faith? And here I'm not confusing this with social action. Because Jesus makes it clear, He said, as you did it for Me. It's a love respond to Christ. But how does Jesus Christ see your faith? There's another part of this here, of the tenacity of faith. The strength of it. I like this quote from Francis Chan from Crazy Love. He says, God doesn't call us to be comfortable. He calls us to trust Him so completely that we, were un that we are unafraid to put ourselves in situations where we will be in trouble if He doesn't come through. <laughs> right? Faith is putting yourself in a situation where you will be way in trouble if God doesn't come through. Isn't that what these four men have done? I mean, think about the risk they've taken. One, I mean, you know, it's a bit of a risk lowering this guy down, right? But what about the penalty they would have faced? They completely destroyed this guy's roof. Last week, I was uh, headed into the bathroom right before we, I went to bed, and I noticed 
this dripping from our roof. I was like, I can't believe this. Now, if you know the history of my house, I've had a lot of this in my life. But, you know, we, we, we bit the bullet a couple years ago, got a loan and got a new roof. So I'm like, what in the world's going on here? And so, you know, I get the ladder and I'm, I'm anxious about this and I move away the, the little board with the crawl space and all of a sudden it starts snowing in my bathroom. Like, what is going on here? Well, I look up and the, the, the crawl space cap, which is a good like 50 or 60 pounds. This was last Friday. Remember what happened last Friday? The wind blew it off and sent it like three feet away. But I'll tell you, the thought that there was, I didn't just look at the roof, hole in my roof and go, I'm going to bed, honey. I mean, a hole in the roof is a big deal. This is a hole as big as a stretcher, right? I mean, these guys take a risk here. Tenacious faith is willing to risk, even be offensive and rude, even be outlandish for the sake of Jesus. Tenacious faith. I wonder what that might look like for you. Is it this week having that conversation with your coworker or family member that you know that is long overdue? Is that how Jesus will observe your faith? Is it getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning so you can spend time in G- with Jesus so you can stop making excuses that you're too busy to? Is it that? Is it inviting a needy person into your home? Is it becoming an advocate for an issue of justice? You know, I'm sure many of you are familiar with that bumper sticker that says, well-behaved women seldom make history. Right? Whether it's women or men, a dynamic you see in society is that the status quo often has to be offended for things to change. Right? I mean, whether it's the Me Too campaign, whether it's protests about the shooting of unarmed black men, whether it's marches about unborn children. Oftentimes, people of faith must offend other people, must move into an area, even be considered rude. Not being rude, but be considered rude because of the tenacity of their faith. Does your obedience ever evidence that? That's a question I ask of myself and you. Tenacious faith. But there's another aspect of this tenacity, and that is it fights obstacles. It's fighting faith. Now, there's a certain principle in mindset. And it goes like this where we say, well, God opens doors and God closes doors. And that's biblical. We see that in the New Testament. But it's not the only principle. Another principle is God opens doors, God closes doors, but sometimes God wants you to rip the door off the hinges. He wants you to tear the door down. That's what we see here. And we see in Scripture the woman who had been bleeding for years presses through the crowd to touch Jesus. A Gentile woman who who Jesus actually puts obstacles in her way. You know, sometimes it's God who's putting the obstacle in your way. Because He wants you to develop the muscle of faith. She pursues Jesus. Jesus finally, delighted, blesses her. And then you got these men here. I mean, you know, they didn't just sort of push against the door. And I find I often do this. Maybe you do too. too. Here's the door. I push again and go, well, God's sovereign. I push again. Well, God's providence. Right? But these guys actually formulate a plan to blow up the roof. They make a plan. 
and they go ahead with his plan. But the motive really matters too. You know, I, I, our goal, sometimes the biggest obstacle in our life are our own goals, perhaps. Again, Francis Chan, he says, our greatest fear should not be of failure, greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. It might be that our obstacle is our own self-achievement. It's our own self-glory. This is the thing that prevents us from having tenacious faith. And God wants us to tear the door off that. But the motive, again, isn't just to get something done. The motive is the love of these friends. And this is where we get encouragement. We don't have to go it alone. We love in American society this idea that, uh, of the individual who does something radical and tenacious. We love that. You know what the Bible loves more? When the community does it. Right? They, they come together, these friends, these four friends. Meg and I have seen two films in the last couple uh, weeks. One is Dunkirk, and the other is Darkest Hour. And if you've seen them, you know they, they both center. In fact, I think the second film does a better job of presenting the dire circumstances of the first film, which was the Allied forces, Brits, French, Dutch. Here they are trapped on the beach of Dunkirk by the Nazis, the German. They're, they're about ready to be annihilated, especially for Britain. This would have been most of their army. They would have had to surrender. And so Churchill actually asked private citizens, civilian boats, to go and rescue these soldiers. And over 800-some boats do it. 200 of them were sank. But they deliver over a quarter of a million soldiers. And they refer to in Britain a Dunkirk spirit. Right? It's a community spirit. One of the things I've loved about moving into this building, it's been like a good old barn raising. I mean, you know, everybody's been involved to get us into this place. People have asked me, what's been your favorite thing? It's been that. It's been seeing our community in action. You know, we often hear the phrase, there's strength in numbers. There is faith in numbers. So if you feel like your faith is weak, come together with some. Kara uh, Callahan, our chief of staff, said to uh, Mike and I this week, she said, you know, uh, our church plant has been repotted in a new place. It's pretty good, huh? Church plant has been repotted, and she said, I wonder what God is calling us to do. How is He calling us to bear fruit in this new space? And I'm putting that out to you. What would tenacious faith look like in this new space? One way I can invite you is next week, come here at 4 o'clock, and Harry from the prayer team is going to lead a prayer walk. Just walk the blocks in small groups of people and pray about this place. Asking God to bless our faith. Or maybe for you it's in a smaller thing. And that is that maybe you and a couple friends from your community group or friends from your church need to carry someone else to Jesus. And you know you've been needing to do that. But now you're going to do it. And I have to tell you, I've heard so many testimonies in our community of people that do that. I love it. This spirit of we're going to come together. Faith, there is strength in faith in numbers. But ultimately, tenacious faith has the compulsion to get into the presence of Jesus. That's its greatest desire and aim.
So let's go to the last point here. The tenacity of Jesus. One of the details that Luke gives us is more about the religious leaders. This is what we're told. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Now that wasn't a fan club. This is an official delegation to do a formal inquiry. This is where things begin to heat up between Jesus and the religious leaders. They come ready to pounce on Him. And you would think Jesus might play it safe, but He actually seems to provoke them. To provoke their response. I mean, everyone would have been surprised when that man was lowered before Jesus that the first words out of His mouth weren't, be healed. Right? They weren't be healed. They were, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. This is the priority places. You know, and it raises a question. You go, wait, wait, wait. Wasn't this this guy's paralysis worse than his sins? That's how we think. The circumstance is worse than the sin. This is why when suffering comes, we stop believing in God. Because we say, you know, listen, the suffering is far worse than the sin. I mean, this guy probably wasn't that bad of a person. I mean, he has four friends, right? (laughs) And they're willing to go to the mat for him, literally. But Jesus sees a deeper need. We talked about this last week. Even though there's not always a correlation between sin and sickness, sin is at the root of all the bad stuff. And we know in Jesus' forgiveness, He wasn't forgiving something between He and the man because they had never met before. Jesus was making a general declaration of this man's sinfulness. Your sins are forgiven. The word he uses, the verb, uh, is is a perfect tense, meaning forgiven permanently. You see what Jesus is doing here. The Pharisees obviously did. Jesus is addressing the most pressing need, but he's also asserting the prerogative of God. Because only God can forgive sins. In Jewish theology, they didn't believe the Messiah would forgive sins. So even if people believe Jesus was the Messiah, they're still scratching their head going, what's going on here? But Jesus, you know, He stands up and basically says, yes, I'm God. I'm going to heal this man. And so that you might know that I really can forgive his sins because forgiving sins is invisible, I'll also heal him so you'll know the forgiveness is for real. And that's what He does. He forgives the man of his sins. My son, your sins are forgiven. Permanently forgiven. Gone. Take your mat and walk. And then, the tenacity of Jesus could have just left it there, but instead, because He has this ability to read the thoughts of people, He pushes in further and says, why do you have such evil thoughts to the religious leaders in front of all these people? I mean, this is like, you know, this is the high bar. These are the really holy guys. And Jesus says, why do you have such evil? Because he knew they were saying, this guy's a blasphemer. And as I mentioned, this begins the conflict that begins to roll and grow and crescendo until they finally execute Jesus. And here we see the greatest tenacity of the Son of God. His willingness to be hated, to be tortured, and to be crucified for you and me. 
This is the tenacity of God. This is the greatest picture of what God would do for you and I. There's no other story like it. No other God like this. Jesus goes to that place so that He might lift you on your mat and bring you into the throne room of God. But the problem is the door is closed and so He rips it off the hinges through His death and resurrection. He rips it off the hinges so that you might have access and confidence in the presence of God. A tenacious Savior is deserving of tenacious faith. And that's what compels us. When you see, when you and I put that before ourselves regularly, that this is how far God would go. Tell me, how, how much further could He go? What else could be done than what the Gospel describes Jesus has done? Nothing else. I mean, absorbing all earthly pain, but also heavenly pain. This is the tenacity of your Savior. Can we pray that we'll match it with tenacity of faith? Please pray with me. We thank You, Father, for how far the Son would go, how far You would go in sending Him. Oh Lord, I thank You for the strength of faith that I see in our congregation. But Lord, we, we want to go further. Even this week, would You ignite us? Would You produce in us a faith that's willing to be rude and outlandish? A faith that's willing to do whatever has to happen so the door comes off. Help us, Lord. We know You will. In Christ's name, Amen.